Welcome to Emerge Everywhere. I'm Jennifer Tesher, journalist turned financial health champion. As founder and CEO of the Financial Health Network, I've spent my career connecting forward-thinking leaders to the growing FinHealth movement. Now I'm sharing these conversations with you. Discover how these visionaries are challenging the status quo and improving financial health for their customers, employees, and communities. My guest today, Annie Lim, is a refreshingly authentic fintech entrepreneur who has transformed her personal history of financial difficulty into a financial wellness company that offers loans and financial coaching programs. As the CEO and co-founder of Honeybee, Annie has brought her entire self to her company, willingly sharing her story to convince employers that they can play an active role in their employees' financial lives. Annie, welcome to Emerge Everywhere. Thanks for having me. So, Annie, you are the founder and CEO of Honeybee. Tell us a little bit about your company and how it works. Let's start there. Great. Uh, Well, you and your team at Financial Health Network know this issue very well. Economic inequalities already existed way before the pandemic. So I wanted to highlight some of the issues and why we do what we do. Uh, But what the pandemic really did is accelerated the need to get access to better financial tools. And we started to see employers realize that it's no longer a nice to have, but a must have to have additional uh, financial wellness benefits or any financial wellness benefits at all in order to retain and attract that talent, especially in this tight labor market. So uh, at Honeybee, we saw a massive shift towards employers buying behavior because every industry was just trying to keep up um, to attract talent and compete for them. So we became a really integral part of their retention and employee engagement strategy. So what we do at Honeybee and our goal is to ensure that every working American can get free and equal access to financial tools to better themselves and their family. And we make that possible by providing no cost rainy day funds. So that means no interest, no late fees, no subscription, no tipping and unlimited access to financial therapy. And we treat financial therapy the same way like we would treat mental health. One in five mental health issues are related to money concerns. And when you're dealing with mental health, you can read up online about ways to treat yourself, but you really can't compare getting that one-on-one therapy session. And it could be life-changing for so many people. So we look at financial therapy the exact same way, and we should treat financial health that same way. Uh, When someone's overwhelmed with their finances, um, like I was five years ago after my divorce, speaking to a financial therapist would have made really the world of a difference for me. And I know it would have made a huge difference for my mom that was a sole breadwinner for a household of five when she was struggling to get by. So so that's what we do in a nutshell. And we also um, have our Honey Academy program. We put these educational webinars together. Um, So for employees and their families and their kids to attend some of these webinars, and we customize that based on employers. And of course, all of this is uh, paid by the employer and 100% um, free access for employees. Wow. You've given us so much to talk about, Annie. So um, as some of our listeners might know, Honeybee was part of... Um, the Financial Health Network's Accelerator, uh, part of the Financial Solutions Lab. And so I've gotten to watch Honeybee uh, grow and develop from a pretty early moment in time. And if I remember correctly, I feel like your initial concept 
was enabling employees to take out loans against their outstanding vacation time, like trying to figure out what are assets that even low-wage workers might have that they might be able to leverage. And now clearly, um, similar idea, but you've pivoted in a whole host of different ways based on what you've learned in the market. Talk a little bit about how you got from from that original idea to to here. And also tell us where the name Honeybee comes from. Absolutely. Uh, well, I've been, you know, we, we've been privileged to be part um, of Financial Health Network for a while now, and it's amazing to be part of that network. So you have seen uh, different iterations of Honeybee. So I'll start with um, Honeybee, the name. Uh, the brand name, the, the name comes from, if you think about honeybees as insects, they're really crucial insects uh, for the ecosystem. They bring a product that brings wellness. So I think about, you know, we have to find ways to protect these honeybees from the environment. And the same way we have to protect working Americans, that's bringing a lot of products um, that we use every day. So that's- I love that. Kind of workers, that. workers, worker bees, honeybees, yeah. love it. Exactly. And, um, and so, yes, Honeybee has lived through, you know, a few key pivots. And like statistically, I think about 55% of Americans have millions of um, paid vacation that sits that are left on the table every year. And U.S. companies are carrying about $300 billion in liability wow. for all of that unused PTO that sits on their balance sheet. So those are assets that working Americans own. And Honeybee wanted to leverage that PTO to provide access to credit that people, especially for people that need it most. Now try and repeat that to HR. <laughs> Yeah. So although it's great in theory, and I still think it's a super genius idea, um, it was unbelievably difficult to sell to HR. There were so many questions uh, from legal and labor laws. Uh, we did successfully sign about 10 companies when we started, but mm -hmm. you can imagine um, all of those questions made it a very lengthy sales cycle. So right yeah, right before the pandemic, we wanted to ensure that, you know, we changed that model and it was going to be a proof case of whether employers were going to pay for it. And during one of the most like challenging time that the world has ever seen, <laughs> to ensure that uh, their workforce had 100% free access to the tools they needed. And I know there's a lot of fintech companies that provide a solution that's free for employers, but the reality is somebody has to pay for those fees. And I did come across um, that Fin Health report that you know uh, Financial Health Network just published, and you saw about two hundred and fifty-five billion dollars of interest and in fees are mm -hmm. for everyday financial services are paid by vulnerable households. So if we could figure out a way where they didn't have to pay for anything, and uh, it just never felt right to earn revenue from a population that relied on it and had to borrow perpetually. So that's why we- So now why employers? Tell me why employers? That's been, that's been a consistent through line for you, um, you know, from the very beginning of Honeybee. Why are they important here? And, and did your business model shift work? Um, is this been a useful shift for uh, businesses? Um, yes, I'll answer that question first. Thankfully, we're still around. And yes, it did work. And I think we're almost at over uh, 60 companies now. So the proof case that like employers need to, you know, bulk up their benefits, they're already paying for things like snacks. And um, if you just kind of put that and budgeted, you know, a small fee to cover your employees, like 
um, financial wellness, it would make the world of a difference for them. So luckily, you know, <laughs> that pivot did work. Um, we weren't sure when we started and when the pandemic happened, but um, I'm glad that we're starting to see that shift in the employer's buying behavior. And why employers? I think when um, I first started, it's uh, my co-founder, Benny, who you know him pretty well. Uh, his family used to own restaurants. And every time an employee was faced with an emergency, his dad would find himself lending money to the employees. Mm. Uh, my mom experienced it firsthand because she always relied on a loan that she would get from her boss as well. And just talking to different industries when we first started, we realizing we were starting to realize that it was pretty common uh, within the workplace, but no one really talked about it. We came across employers that are like, yeah, I do lend employees money, but you know, I, it really depends on like if they're crying or not. There was no structure in place and uh, no real way to like collect that money back because it's extremely awkward um, between you know employers and employees when you know you have to collect that money back from your employees. And so we knew that there was an opportunity to solve this problem through the employer channel. And then now even more so that employers, you know, cover for it and employees have free access. They feel they're more engaged with the workforce and definitely feel more loyal. And that's why we're definitely an integral part of their retention and engagement strategy today. You mentioned at the beginning of our conversation uh, that COVID has obviously uh, driven significant demand from employers that, you know, talent is so hard to come by right now. Um, that plus employers really seeing up close and personal uh, the financial challenges that people have every day and how it was, how they could, how it can get in the way of work. I'm wondering if there are certain sectors certain kinds of employers or certain sectors of the of the economy where an employee wellness solution seems to be a better fit or whether or where the HR professionals and frankly the C suite has a greater appreciation and understanding of the benefit uh, yeah. So when we started, we started with nonprofit sectors and there was definitely a huge need with nonprofit sectors. And we started expanding the way we see it is there's, you know, uh, almost seven out of 10 Americans <laughs> that live paycheck to paycheck. So you can imagine how many people need it. Um, so the one industry that we didn't focus as much on was probably, you know, the high paying tech industry. So with that, you know, as an exception, we looked at all the other industries. So today we're working with um, a lot of distribution center, a lot of nonprofits. Um, you know, you have museums, we have schools, uh, healthcare, utilities, water utilities, waste utilities. So if you focus on low to middle income workers in America, which is, I think, roughly about 87 million Americans are that fall into that sector. That is, that's a massive market. And so that's how we started. And then we started working with, um, we started with different industries, but now we're definitely looking at regions as we break up our sales team. Got it. And so, you know, you've been out this for a few years now, and I'm curious, what are you learning from the actual workers who are using your platform? Is there anything surprising that you've learned? Um, are there any stories that folks have shared with you about the difference that uh, the product is making in their lives? Um, absolutely. The one thing we did learn, and I think we we knew this at the very beginning um, through the Financial Health Network, we got to work with um, Washington University in St. Louis. 
to collect uh, data from our users. And the result was really astonishing that 89% of our users were people of color and mostly women. And I think we always knew this, but seeing that, you know, in black and white was really telling because we were able to you know, reduce that financial literacy gap in the workplace um, and also give people access to credit. But some of the stories we hear, I wouldn't say they're surprising, but I think that's what keeps me going is listening to these stories. So at the end of every application, we get, um, there's a little section where they can put a note for HR. I think it's really important to send these notes to HR because they are the ones implementing this and they need to know that, you know, what they've done is really valuable for the people that are using it. So at the beginning of COVID, we saw, you know, kids were moving to virtual learning. We had a single mom that relied on meals that were provided um, for her daughter at school. But like one in six Americans, you know, she started going to a food bank and she used the honeybee funds to pay for internet for the first time mm. and uh, for her daughter to get a computer, which is something they never had to do before. And we had a healthcare worker. Um, she doesn't have the luxury to work from home like so many of us. And so she had to commute about two hours to work every day. And so this has happened before Honeybee was implemented, but her car broke down. And before she had Honeybee, she missed a week of work because she couldn't figure out how to get cash mm. for her car repair. And unfortunately, as a last resort, ended going to a payday lender, paying about 500%. Um, in interest. And in addition to that, you talk about it trickling into the workplace. Because she had missed an entire week of work, um, her colleagues had to cover her shift and pay, um, do overtime. So, and then you look at when she had Honeybee, she was immediately able to get the funds she needed, no questions asked. And uh, our financial therapist also helped her, you know, to save up to get a better secondhand car. And I think like those are the, some of the stories that we hear constantly. It's like, um, we think it's important to get access to that no cost loan. They feel like, uh, at first they're like, what's, you know, this is too good to be true. Like, why, why is this like free? And, but in order to, you know, work with them financially to meet their financial goals, they do need that education piece. And I think that is so key and a huge component of what we're offering. Mm. So I'm struck in this conversation by how much the product, the concept, the way you think about financial therapy, which is, I've never heard anyone use that framing before, super interesting, that all of that really comes out of your own lived and personal experience. And I think one of the things that's really unique about you is your authenticity and you're willing to talk about uh, those experiences. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about the story uh, that you shared earlier about uh, the challenges that you faced after your own divorce. Um, and if you can tell us more about how that led to uh, the creation of Honeybee. Um, well, first of all, thank you. And um, that means a lot. 
And so when I, I know I'm very transparent about, you know, my background and my setbacks. And when we started Hanmibi, that was definitely not the case. Uh, I was embarrassed to talk about my setbacks when we launched. Um, I was living in my parents' basement out of necessity because <laughs> I couldn't get approved for any apartment because it, the divorce had affected my credit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you hit a new low in your mid thirties when your mom gives you money to buy groceries, <laughs> but somehow, you know, solving one of the most fundamental problems in the U S still seemed like a really great idea. So when we started, I was cold calling a lot of employers. I would even show up at distribution centers, like completely unannounced. And, uh, but there was one pivotal meeting that really changed my perspective um, it was this one company, they, it was actually a city in the Bay Area. They had agreed to meet in person. There was about five people in the room. I remember um, some of them included HR managers, directors, head of finance. And I pitched Honeybee like I always did at the very beginning. And um, one person had said, our employees doesn't look like they would need this. And that's what really triggered me. I think that was my aha moment because I paused and I asked her um, if I looked like I was someone that needed financial help. And there was this awkward silence. But at that moment, I decided I was going to share about my financial setback. And that the last thing I said to them um, was that they should never assume that people doesn't need access to financial help when most of America lives paycheck to paycheck. And well, needless to say, I never signed that client, (laughs) but a woman from that meeting had reached out to me after and thanked me for being so transparent. Uh, She was going through a divorce herself and had financial difficulties. And it's really unfortunate that she wasn't able to share that experience um, that day. And then that just became my purpose to always be able to destigmatize access to financial health in the workplace by really encouraging people to open up about their setbacks, especially at the C-level. And uh, that's truly embedded in our culture today, Uh, not just about personal finances, but really creating a safe place that people can open up, share vulnerability, and lean on each other to overcome their challenges. So I've been pretty transparent about my struggles ever since. And sometimes it makes people uncomfortable. I've seen investors like, oh, that's like overshare. <laughs> but, um, but you know, it is what it is. And if people had more empathy, I, I really do feel the world would be a better place. I couldn't agree with you more. You know, what's so interesting about your being transparent and using yourself as an example of the need, I mean, lots of founders have stories that that somehow connect to the purpose of their product. But I think one of the other reasons why your sharing is particularly brave is because of the additional burden or challenge that I'm guessing you face as a woman in fintech. Uh, and you know, I don't have to tell you about all of the stories of uh, women founders who just have a way tougher time raising money, whose uh, ideas are often scoffed at, laughed at by male investors. Uh, So in a way, sharing that story potentially plays even more into some of the negative stereotypes that I think can lead to challenges for women. So talk a little bit more about how you're navigating 
uh, this world um, as a female founder. I mean, you were just named to Inc.'s most innovative women founders. Clearly, you're doing something right. Uh, but you m- must have worked on this very intentionally. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think like the the barriers to entry, well, especially in fintech, is definitely high. Um, as you know, the space is highly regulated, um, and not only is fintech very much a boys' club, but venture capital is mm-hmm. still heavily like male dominated. Uh, I like to think of it a lot like a meritocracy. They invest in people very similar to them. They will stick with their existing networks. And VC firms are like, they're hiring a lot of female associates, um, as I saw in my last fundraising round. But the reality is only about 12% of those decision makers are v- at VC firms are women, and even less so women of color. And, and I think a big part of this journey is I've learned to accept uh, rejection gracefully. I feel like women in general will always have to deal with more challenges. Uh, and gender bias is not just in fintech or tech. It happens in every industry. That's really frustrating to read, you know, like sports, entertainment. And uh, there's clearly so much work to be done. But I think a big part of my goal is that, you know, as I'm going through this journey, I do want to make it you know, easier for someone after me that has to go through this. So whatever I see, you know, women in like fintech or new entrepreneurs, I will 100% always spend the time to like, if you have any questions, if you have any help, like need any help, like, please let me know because why do we have to make it hard for, for everyone? And I think, I I think about like my, I had this conversation over the holidays with my family and I think about my twin nieces and if I could, you know, make it easier for someone like them uh, when they grow up and hopefully they become an entrepreneur one day that it will just, the, the journey will just be a lot easier for them. And I think I would actually like to ask you that same question. You're a highly respected leader in a very male-dominated space. Have you faced similar challenges and like how have you overcome them? Well, this is a good example of how you are successful because I've never had a guest turn <laughs> the microphone on me. I love that. Uh, and, you know, I think um, we probably have a little bit of a generational difference, you and I. And uh, so I grew up at a time where, you know, women were sort of had to wear the big shoulder pads in their suit mm-hmm. jackets that looked like male clothing yeah, to, de- to demonstrate that they could be taken seriously. Uh, but it was also a time when, you know, we were taught that women could have it all. Women could be in the workplace and make a difference in their careers and have children and juggle it all somehow. And it would all work out. And I think uh, it didn't take very long to see that that wasn't exactly true. And while I have deep appreciation for all of the women who came before me and who paved the trail, right, that enabled me to really be able to do what I wanted to do, um, it certainly hasn't been easy. Um, I and, and like you, where we talked about, you know, both being a, a woman leader in finance and fintech, uh, but also sharing things about your personal experience that may be in some cases a negative, negatively associated with being a woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I run a nonprofit organization that has a, a mission and there's also a stereotype associated with that. 
uh, I, I often am seen as the do-gooder. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that's the thing that I've always focused on is making sure I'm being taken seriously and that the work and the mission is being taken seriously. It's not just a nice idea, but as a game changer that really impacts the lives of a majority of Americans and is going to impact the businesses of the companies and organizations we work on, we work with. So um, it doesn't sound like it's getting easier, uh, but it does sound like it's something that we're at least able to talk about and acknowledge uh, in a more full way. So I really appreciate the question. Oh, I thanks for sharing that. I, I think it's so interesting when you talk about um, impact focus because uh, we're a for-profit, um, but we are definitely impact-focused. And there is that negative, like, uh, you know, connotation when you're, especially when you're pitching to investors because they're like, well, we want to make a lot of profit. So, you know, how, how are we going to do that? So I've I've had so many pitches and investors, like, we don't like the fact that it's like too impact-focused. And so mm-hmm. I started, you know, removing, you know, catering it to my audience, right? Sometimes I would remove that. Uh, from my pitch that we were so mission driven and impact focused, focused more on the number and the growth and like the the margins. And it was it's very interesting, like because I had to cater to that audience. And um, but it is interesting that you mentioned that. Right. And I think, you know, in the social impact world, wherever one is on the spectrum in terms of uh, mission and margin, uh, it it's all about balancing the idea of uh, tailoring one's message mm-hmm. to the audience while at the same time not losing sight of what really matters. And I think that is one of the most challenging things that the founders that I think we work with uh, through the Financial Solutions Lab face because all of them are part of our accelerator because they in some way are connected to a broader mission. They're also all trying to make money doing it. And, you know, we fundamentally believe that one can do both of those things at the same time. And despite the fact that there's been a lot of movement in the world towards that idea, particularly with folks who are focused on return and and focused on finance, um, it can be hard to make that case that there isn't, that doesn't have to be a trade-off. Absolutely. So um, any... Tell me what we can expect uh, from Honeybee this year. And and as you're talking about that, would love to hear you reflect on what you think is going to happen to the enthusiasm among employers for financial wellness solutions as God willing, the pandemic hopefully, hopefully begins to recede. Are you worried at all that this will feel like a flash in the pan? Um, so, well... I'll answer that first question. And I think um, 2022, I truly believe, and I know like every founder says this <laughs> every year, but like it will be a pivotal moment for us um, this year. Uh, we're building a lot of strong partnership with companies that are like mission aligned. We have extremely loyal customers. Um, we're finding that companies are, you know, seeing that importance in bulking up their financial wellness benefit in order to compete effectively. And I think a big part is like what I'm most proud of, um, of everything we've done is really building a strong culture, even as a fully remote team. We really have like an unbelievably team that has the skill set and ambition to help us 
uh, to help Honeybee grow exponentially and really proud of how, how, how far we've come. It, it is very tough to build uh, a team that is focused on like the mission. And, and I think like that's what we've done successfully um, really well. So like the second question to that is what we're expecting from employers. We did see that shift, you know, when COVID happened and, you know, one in five household was losing an income earner. Uh, employers definitely saw, you know, the how important it was um, because employees were affected when hours were decreased, they were being furloughed. And that was like early 2020. And then after that, you saw this, you know, um, race for talent. And then you have to see companies like Amazon and Target kind of lead the way because that's what triggers employers. They're like, well, we don't want all our employees being taken up by, you know, um, all these large companies because, and then I know that you know this well through the uh, worker initiative that you worked with like uh, multiple large companies is mm-hmm. um, they have to lead the way and they're already doing that. So you're going to see more and more um, of these larger companies put these financial wellness benefit as the forefront and everyone will just start to follow. And I think like 401k 40 years ago might've seemed crazy to a lot of employers, like, why are we paying for this? Why are we investing in this? Why are we matching? But it's just part of every package today to invest in your employees' retirement savings and to help them as they retire. I, you know, I'm sure a lot of employees thought that was crazy, but I think we're seeing more and more of the employees um, and the employers are starting to realize how important this is. So my hope is that um, we have a lot of large companies in our pipeline, and they are the ones that will lead the way. And, and I think that's why our focus is like really looking at these large companies, because the more they lead the way, um, the easier it will be for you know mid-market companies and smaller companies to bring it on. Just becomes standard practice. Yes, exactly. Well, any best of luck to you and the Honeybee team in 2022. And thank you for joining me on Emerge Everywhere. Thank you so much, Jennifer. And it's always a pleasure to see you. This has been Emerge Everywhere, a Financial Health Network production. If you like the show, please help spread the financial health message by leaving a review. And if you have ideas for future guests or thoughts on the show, please click on the link in the show notes to connect with us. See you next time.